Hello and welcome to our Classic Music Podcast Extra. I'm Lawrence Lewis. In this edition, we're going to explore the Gilded Age. That's late 19th century American wind band music with New Berry's Victorian Cornet Band, conducted by Eliza Curler. Now, they use period instruments to create an authentic sound, which you can hear on their recently released MSR Classics recording, A Real Hi-Fi System Worker Outer. Waiting for us now on a Zoom line from Florida is Michael O'Connor, who's edited for performance all the music on this disc. So greetings from London, Michael. Please tell us where the amazing name of Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band came from? Well, that's that's a great question and a very uh, complicated answer. Uh, it comes from uh, all over the United States. We started in, um, we started in Newark, Delaware, uh, when I was teaching at the University of Delaware for uh, part-time for a little bit. And uh, so some of the original members came from that area, and then we started broadening out. And I just began collecting members as I met them at various uh, places. And we decided not to be a, um, a regularly performing band. Uh, rather, we would uh, perform occasionally and then do recordings of this music that I was finding. And um, I found that that seems to work the best to get you know the, the very finest players. Having found your players, was it very difficult to find the scores for them to play from? Uh, at first, I found most of the music uh, for free download from the Library of Congress. Um, that's sort of our British library over here. <laughs> and, um, and so this was just music that they had put up um, back in the early 2000s as part of their American Memory Project. Um, and um, I was finding just this amazing band music that I, nobody I knew had ever heard of. And I decided, okay, well, let's put together some people and play through this and see what it's like. And, and certainly had a, a very Victorian quality about it. And I started doing some research about bands of the time, and I realized, hey, no one is doing this, really, so why not us? And your gilded age was just waiting to be explored. Well, on the early side of that was the American Civil War. Um, originally, I had thought to put together a band of, uh, you know, that, you know, of music from that time, but I began to see that uh, acquiring the instruments was going to be a very pricey uh, endeavor. And so um, I thought, well, what else is there? And so I looked right after the Civil War, and 
the mass-produced instruments of uh, the 1870s, 80s, 90s, um, they are still around and very, very affordable. So uh, I figured, let, let's, let's do that, put that together with the music I've been finding. On the far end of that, um, we have a distinct change in band music. Um, the, uh, starting with the Gilmore Band, and then especially the Sousa Band. Gilmore dies in 1892, and Sousa, very coincidentally, starts his civilian band in 1892, um, now that his, his main rival would be out of the way, I guess. Um, and so Sousa's music is a very, very different sound than the music that came the, the two decades before that. So it's a very, very delineated period of sound, actually. It's, it's not arbitrary at all. It's a, it's, a, it's a time when the brass instruments were changing, and also we see the introduction just very, very gradually of woodwind instruments towards the uh, end of that period. Okay, so now you've got this project all set up, you've mentioned your instruments at this remove, did it prove difficult to acquire these period brass instruments and some that were obviously going to be in a playable condition? Well, to get the instruments themselves, it wasn't very difficult, especially at first. I began acquiring instruments at the dawn of eBay, and, um, and they were just all over the place. You could find them in antique stores, you could find them at, you know, um, all over the place, people's attics. Um, they're getting a little bit harder to find now, but you know these instruments are, are still fairly easy to find um, and, and not terribly expensive. The, this, in fact, they're more expensive to repair than they are to purchase. I usually send them off to uh, a good local brass repairman can work on these particular instruments. They're, they're not the, uh, the specialized nature that, say, um, the 1850s, 1840s instruments would require. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're actually, they're factory made instruments, so they're, they're not hard to repair at all. I did notice that in your instrument list in the liner notes, there's a snare drum made by Wurlitzer. Is that the Wurlitzer of organ fame? It is indeed. Uh, the Wurlitzer uh, company uh, had their fingers in many pies at that time, like many of the uh, companies. Um, I doubt that they actually uh, made the instruments themselves. They put their stamp on them, like a lot of companies at the time did. I'm not sure who probably actually made this drum. I'm not a percussion expert, but I know it is from the period. It's probably around 1900 or so, um, but made on a similar... In fact, a lot of our instruments are that way. They, they may date to just past uh, you know, Queen Victoria's demise, but um, <laughs> they, um, they're made on the same patterns in the same factories, you know, basically exactly the same way as the ones in the 1890s, maybe the late 1880s were made.
Now, Michael, is there in your Gilded Age one outstanding American composer for music for wind band? There's Verdi is on here, of course. <laughs> and uh, the arrangements are probably the ones that we had the most fun with. Uh, we have two Verdi arrangements on here, both arranged by uh, J.B. Klaus. Uh, Klaus was a German immigrant um, arranger who, uh, I think he went first to Canada and then to the United States. And uh, you know he was just really, really good at taking these orchestral pieces and you know setting them for the band. He understood exactly how these bands worked uh, to get the best effect out of them. But as far as a, an original composer goes, I mean we do have a Sousa uh, piece on here. Um, I, I have to go with my favorite uh, a fellow by the name of Thomas Coates, <laughs> because uh, we did a we did a CD earlier. He's kind of a personal favorite of mine because he's quite the character. He, um, uh, you know, he's, he's quite an old man when he's writing uh, this music that we're recording on this particular CD. Um, we included this one because we found it after we did the first CD. Um, they, you know, these pieces still keep cropping up. And we wanted to make sure that we had sort of the complete works, you know, on record. And he was an interesting character in the fact that, um, you know, he was born in the early 1800s, probably played in one of the very first circus bands in America, toured as a 10-year-old on French horn, and uh, you know he was a band leader during the Civil War in his 60s, if we believe his date range, and uh, he was still composing up to the day he died in, in 1895. And it's so interesting to see his music. This is a guy who was famous in the 1840s. See his music sitting alongside the catalog entries of people like Sousa and uh, and others of that age. He was known among the people who were in the know. I, I mean, he, I mean, all the all the band players and all the composers, all the arrangers, all the people involved in the industry knew who Tom Coates was. Um, again, even into his later years, he was it was a little bit of a memory by then. And you probably see one of his uh, pieces come up in the 1890s, and somebody goes, "Wow, he's still alive," <laughs> that sort of thing. But. Um, now, I doubt too many people outside of the industry and outside of the town that he worked in and led a band would have known his name. mentioned Verdi and Thomas Coates, there's a Bellini arrangement which is unusual in that it highlights not a soprano, but a B-flat clarinet. Yes, uh, setting a Bellini, um, um, a section from uh, his opera, that's a clarinet solo that was performed by uh, Dominic Giardino. Um, it's an amazing, amazing performance. Uh, you know, he's... Uh, He's a young man that we met um, while doing some performances down in Key West, down here in Florida. 
And then uh, he and his family moved up to New York. He eventually went to the Eastman School and then to The Hague for uh, historical clarinet training. And he is, he's certainly one of the up-and-coming uh, young historic clarinet players that I know. He's just amazing, and it was great to see his, his progress and feature him on this record. There's also a spectacular piccolo solo. Oh, Christy Beard, she is, she's a, I mean, she's not only a wonderful person, but she's an amazing musician as well. And uh, she tours all over the world doing piccolo solos and, uh, and flute as well. And it was just, it's just wonderful to have her in the band. It makes me feel like, you know, um, you know I'm important too because I get to play with her. <laughs> Now you're listed as playing the B-flat bass. What's that instrument? In the United States, the B-flat bass, the nomenclature, was for a euphonium-sized instrument. And so um, that took the role uh, normally played by the bass trombone. Um, and also, it, it might get a solo here and there, but very rarely. It was really the bottom of the, um, of the trombone section, to be honest, and sort of doubled up with the, uh, the E-flat basses as well. I'm trying to think of sort of a modern equivalent. Um, I mean, euphonium does a lot of this, you know, in its sort of more standard um, scoring fare, but um, the baritone is the one that gets the solo. So really, if you take the euphonium and divide its two roles that it normally plays in, say, a brass band, um, you have two instruments in the uh, American band of the time. You have the baritone playing the solos, and you have the B-flat bass playing, you know, sort of the, the doubling of the bass line. 
Well, the bass line would later become very obviously important for jazz. So ultimately, Michael, at the end of your Gilded Age, did this music go into the crucible out of which came jazz and American popular music of the 20th century? Well, it's all connected. I mean, it's, and it's very, very difficult to tease it out because jazz essentially begins in New Orleans uh, in several ways. You have, of course, you know, the, the Southern blues musicians, but then you also have um, a lot of very, you know, talented, trained and untrained musicians um, benefiting from the surplus of brass instruments that happens after the Civil War. Um, these instruments basically are just given away. And so, um, you know, the musicians in the Deep South begin playing their music on these instruments, and that eventually migrates north and, um, it, you know, picks up other instruments along the way and sort of has its own trajectory. The wind band movement, of course, ties into that too. So a lot of these musicians were also playing in wind bands in the South as well, so kind of doing double duty. And, of course, a lot of the band musicians of the South, you know, liked what they were hearing, and it all just began to, to mix up about the 1920s. Um, as far as symphonic playing goes, um, yeah, you can see a pretty straight line going from sort of the entertainment and dance bands of the 1850s, 60s, 70s. The 80s begins to bring in more and more of the sophisticated music. People, be, you know, really into opera at this point. And um, as we begin to add a few more instruments here and there, we begin to add the clarinets, which mostly double the cornets. Um, but by the 1880s, you start to see um, sort of individual lines for them, more sort of independent lines. And then, uh, boy, even by the 1880s, occasionally you'll see pictures of these bands, and you'll see this odd fellow holding a saxophone. <laughs> and then um, you, you wonder what he played. It must have doubled one of the, the low brass lines or something at the time. But... By the 1890s, you know, with Sousa and, you know, again, Gilmore and some of the other bands that are starting up at the time, they're taking on European ideas. Those are starting to come into the United States. And it basically, you have two things going on at the same time. You have the old tradition of the stuff that we play, and you see a lot of that, like, out west, you know, where the... Uh, um, you know, the news gets to them a little bit later, like Montana and places like that. You see these pictures of minor bands or uh, sometimes even cowboy bands, and they still look like the 1880s bands. But in the East, Boston, New York, um, other places like that, you begin to see these much, much larger bands. And this really starts to change, too, when you start to see the influx of Italian musicians coming in in the 1890s. Um, when that big wave of Italian immigrants comes in, and they bring their band traditions with them. So we get this huge mix of things going on. It starts to settle into um, sort of what Sousa is doing. Uh, he is so famous that um, he sort of standardizes the instrumentation for American bands and uh, right around the turn of the century. The Gilded Age truly did become an American musical crucible. Now, Michael, before I put you on the musical spot, let me just remind our listeners that in this edition of our Classic Music Podcast Extra, we've been talking with Michael O'Connor, who's edited the music for The Gilded Age, late 19th century music for American wind band, played by New Berry's Victorian Cornet Band, conducted by Eliza Curler. And you can find these sounds on MSR Classics MS1726. That's MSR Classics 1726.
From that disc, you heard Salute to New York March by Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore, where it is Overture Nebuchadnezzar, I Am Up Quick Step by Thomas Coates, Fantasia La Sonambula by Bellini, arranged by Ernesto Cavallini, Through the Air by August Dam, and that's the one with the spectacular piccolo solo. And, well, let's thank Michael O'Connor for his insights into a fascinating area of American music and put him on the spot to name one of his musical favorites. Oh, favorite piece on this disc? I, I have favorite pieces for different reasons. Um, but as far as just listening, I really like listening to um, the Sousa, the Semper Fidelis. And the reason, I mean, is I played this a million times, you know, as a, as a college and a professional musician. But this is the first time it's ever been recorded with period instruments. And I was really curious to see how it would sound, you know, with these instruments playing these. And especially with, with our band, which we didn't have all the clarinets and, and all that sort of thing to, um, to really kind of beef out the sound. But it sounded good. And so I, I'm really particularly proud of that one. 